I pray that uh, the Lord will speak to you through this message. If you have your Bible, we're going to be in the book of 2 Kings chapter 6. Uh, 2 Kings 6, starting in verse 8. We've been preaching through the life of Elisha the prophet. We've got just a few messages left. And I've been looking forward to preaching this one today. The message is entitled, Seeing the Unseen. If you've ever read the classic book, The Hiding Place, then you know about Corrie ten Boom and how she tells in that book about how she survived the Nazi Holocaust. She said that on the night before her family was arrested for hiding Jews from the Gestapo, that her family gathered and they together read Psalm 91. And in verse 11 of that psalm, we have this promise. For He will command His angels concerning you and guard you in all your ways. After passing through two concentration camps, Corey and her sister Betsy were shipped off to the dreaded Ravensbrück camp there in Germany, which was the final stop for thousands of Jews. Thus far, she had been able to smuggle her Bible along with her. And of course, a Bible in a Nazi death camp was contraband. And she wrote about her experience saying, As long as we had the Bible, I thought we could face every hell, but I did not know how I would get past the guards at Ravensbrück. So as she stood in line there with hundreds of other women about to enter the camp, she did her best to conceal the Bible hidden under her clothing. But of course, that Bible bulged considerably. And as she waited for inspection from the guards, she muttered this prayer under her breath, Lord, send your angels to surround me. Hide me behind your angels, for the guards must not see me with thy word. Now we'll find out a little later what happened to Miss Corey Ten Boom. But perhaps you might be able today to relate to the tug of war that took place in her soul that day between fear and faith. You may have not been surrounded by gun-toting soldiers, but you have probably been in adverse circumstances that are no less as paralyzing. It could be a bleak prognosis from a doctor. It might be a mountain of dead. It might be a host of family problems, an addiction that has left you isolated and imprisoned. It could be a depression. Whatever the circumstance is, in those moments, it is very hard to see the hand of God in your problem. Now the servant that traveled with Elisha had trouble seeing God when an enemy army had surrounded them and drawn swords. The prophet's servant, in fact, was ready to wave the white flag of surrender because they were outnumbered and they were overwhelmed. Two is no match for 2,000. And so Elisha and his protege are about to face off against an overwhelming odds. And what Elisha had to help his protege to see is the same thing that we must learn to see in times of uncertainty, and that is that God is closer than you think. God may be invisible. 
He may even be silent at times, but that doesn't mean that he's distant. Now, as we open up 2 Kings 6, the story unfolds and we see two kingdoms in conflict. First, we have man-made kingdoms, a physical conflict. We have, on the one hand, the king of Syria, who is trying to deal a death blow to the people of Israel. And then there's another front taking place, an invisible war in the spiritual realm between the forces of evil, the forces of hell, and the forces of heaven. Now in this passage, we're going to understand how Elisha won a huge military victory for his nation. And he did it by faith. Faith in the unseen. And I want you to see three actions that Elisha takes in this passage because they will show us how to achieve victory in our spiritual battles. The first principle that I want you to note today is an unfailing advantage. And that is the Word of God. Elisha the prophet went into this situation with an unfailing advantage. Notice in verse 8. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to this place about which the man of God told him, and thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. Verse 11, And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing, and he called his servants and said unto them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And the, one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet, who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. So as this conflict begins, please notice that it's a cat and mouse game. The Syrian army has tried to stop the Israelites and tried to trap them and so that they can deal a death blow. But the Israelite army is able to stay one step ahead. Because they have Elisha the prophet in their corner. And Elisha is provided with some heavenly reconnaissance, you might say. Every time that the Syrian army planned to move in on the Israelites, the word of the Lord comes to Elisha telling him exactly where the enemy is going to be. And he alerts the king and he tells the king, don't go to this place because that's exactly where the Syrian army is headed. And so he's able to move his troops out of harm's way. And as you read there, you understand that the Syrian king was so frustrated by this happening multiple times that he thought that there was a spy in his ranks. And it wasn't until one of his servants told the general there of Syria, Oh no, your problem is the man of God, Elisha, who knows the very secrets that you tell your war council. Now notice this, Elisha was privy to some insider information about the traps and the schemes of the enemy because he knew the Word of God. In fact, the Word of God came to him, but today we have the Word of God in a more sure and even better way. It's written and in your lap today. And it's easy to outsmart your enemy and stay one step ahead of him when you know in advance the moves he's going to make. You may have heard the saying that the devil plays checkers, but God plays chess. 
And he's ten steps ahead and he's already called checkmate, by the way. Every believer today who is engaged in spiritual warfare, listen to me, you have the same advantage over your enemy today that Elisha had over his enemy in that day because we have in our possession the Word of God and the Word of God exposes the strategy of Satan. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 6.11. He said, put on the whole armor of God, watch this, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. He said again in 2 Corinthians 2.11, Stay sober and stay vigilant so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. Watch this, for we are not ignorant of his designs. There's a book that has become sort of required reading for those in the intelligence community in the, the U.S. military. It was a book that came to the attention of the U.S. forces during the Vietnam War. It fell into their possession and in fact they've found out that the Vietnamese, as they fought against the Americans, were using many of the tactics of this book. It's an ancient book. 2,600 years ago, it was written called The Art of War. And it was written by a Chinese man named Sun Tzu. And there's a principle in that book about warfare that is very applicable to our spiritual lives. Listen to what he says there. If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself but not the enemy, every victory gained will also suffer a defeat. And then he says, if you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. And you can take that and translate it to this passage and into your life. Friend, if you know yourself and we know the enemy as he's exposing the Word of God, we can have victory. Because Satan has a playbook. He's used the same playbook for thousands of years. He hasn't really changed his methods very much from Genesis chapter 3 to today. He has an arsenal of attacks at his disposal. And when one doesn't work, he'll throw another one out. In fact, I got to thinking this week, I was studying about what does Satan do to try and get us to fall. And I came up with this list, and maybe this will help you. Satan just has a few handful of attacks that he uses over and over. He wants us to mess up, give up, get puffed up, split up, shut up, or back up. Now let me unpack those. He wants to get us to mess up. That's to fall into sin, to give in to temptation. He wants us to give up. That's to get discouraged, to believe that... God isn't on our side and that we don't have enough resources and that we can't make it and so we give up before the victory. He tries to get us puffed up and that doesn't take a lot of effort because we're fighting against the old prideful flesh. He wants to get us to live in our self-sufficiency and our pride. He tries to get us split up. He divides us through conflict and lies and gossip and He loves to divide congregations. He tries to get us to shut up, to be quiet when we should speak. When we should be evangelizing, when we should raise our hands and praise God, He gets us to sit back in silence. He tries to get us to back up. That means to retreat, to run away, and to give in to fear rather than to live in faith. Those are most of the strategies that our enemy uses against us. Friend, here's the principle. The better we know the Word of God, the better we know our enemy, and with that knowledge we can go from being victim to victor. 
And here's the good news. When the battle gets hot and when I feel the pressure and when I'm about to fail, I can always turn to a sympathizing Savior. A Savior who in the wilderness after 40 days of temptation, no food eaten, He took on my enemy and He defeated him. I can turn to that sympathizing Jesus and say, Get behind me, Satan, because you're a defeated foe. That same Jesus who kicked your tail in the wilderness lives inside of me. So get behind me, Satan. You can have that victory. Greater is he that is within me than he that is in the world. And so we see, number one, an unfailing advantage, and that is that the prophet had the Word of God. And then secondly, I want you to notice with me today, another thing that he had was, number two, an unseen ally. The Word of God, and now, watch this, the presence of God. The presence of God. Verse 13 is where we will start. But notice here, the king of Syria thinks that he's found a way to defeat Israel. And that is by going to take out Elisha. Verse 13. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. And it was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. Now, think about this and follow the logic all the way through. I don't think the Syrian king had thought about this strategy. If the prophet knows in advance where the enemy army is going to be, then how in the world can he expect to sneak up on God's man? But the Syrians find out that Elisha and his, his friend are out there in Dothan, and they arrive there with overwhelming numbers, and they surround them. Notice verse 14. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, watch this, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city, and the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So when Elisha's servant rolled out of bed that morning, wiped the sleep from his eyes, he walks outside and notices this huge array of horses and chariots. They're hemmed in. And he understandably, he panics. And so the servant of Elisha gives in to what we often give in to. Fear. You think you're bad and you think you're tough. But every one of us has a chink in our armor. And the enemy knows how to use fear against you and me. You know what fear is? It's merely faith turned inside out. And I, I was reading this week, somebody took that word fear, F-E-A-R, and those letters and, and made a lesson out of it. Fear is false evidence appearing real. You know, I noticed a pattern about the devil's strategy. Behind every fear is a falsehood. Our enemy looks at the cracks in our foundation and wherever he can drive in a wedge of fear to divide our minds, he'll do it because it's all about control. Fear is the enemy's tool, is his way to control us with negative thoughts and with doubts about God. So in this instance, fear grips the servant of Elisha's heart and he assumes we are all alone. What are we going to do, Elisha? God has left us to die out here. And isn't that how fear works in our lives too? When you find yourself surrounded by problems... 
You're outnumbered, so to speak. You're overwhelmed by the circumstances of life. You can look at the enveloping problem all around you. You see no answers. You see no way out. You see no relief, no help coming. And you think, God has abandoned me. Satan comes by and then he starts whispering. Satan starts working on you. He'll wake you up at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. Where's your God now? Hey, your God doesn't love you. If He loved you, He'd get you out of this mess. Hello, am I preaching to anybody? That's the way He works on me. God has left you here to die, the enemy says to us. But because of His fear, the servant was blind to the fact, listen to this, because of fear, he couldn't see this one thing that Elisha is going to help him to see. Hey, God is closer than you think. I think about the rearview mirror on your car. Objects in mirror may appear closer, right? God is closer than you think. Verse 16. Elisha said, Do not be afraid, <laughs> for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O oh Lord, please open the eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and when he saw... And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. You know that when you look through your situation, when you're looking through the lens of fear and not through the lens of faith, it obscures your view of God. But the scales fall off the eyes of this young man and the servant now realized that the enemy surrounding him was now being surrounded by the heavenly hosts of the Lord. That help wasn't on the way. Help was already there in the midst of the situation. Here's a great lesson that I take away from this. Notice this. Fear causes us to only see problems. But faith allows us to see God's presence in our problems. And that makes all the difference, right? If you're in the storm and your boat's getting tossed around, it makes a difference if Jesus is in the boat, right? I want to be in the boat where my Savior's at. So use your imagination and picture the scene. You have Elisha and his servant. They're surrounded by a great enemy army. But on the outside of the enemy is God's heavenly army. And think about this. In order for the servant... To get a view of God's strength, he had to first be in a position of weakness. He had to feel the pressure of being overwhelmed and outnumbered before he could look beyond the circumstances and see, oh, wait a second. My God is here. He has not abandoned me. You know, only from that weak position can you then realize the strength of the Lord. Think about my mother. As many of you have talked and heard testimony from my mother about her battle with cancer. You know, when she went through that, she went right up to death's door. And we were praying as a family. And Lord knows we prayed as a church. And God did some amazing things through that whole experience to let us know, hey, I'm right here in the middle of all this. You see, one of the medications that my mother needed, and this is just one story, we could tell many of them. One of the medications that my mother needed for that treatment was very expensive. One bottle of this medication was thousands of dollars. Well, obviously, uh, 
we don't have thousands of dollars just laying around for cancer medication. She needed the medicine. And so we started praying. You were praying. God, make a way. God, meet the need. My parents were praying, Lord, how are we going to afford this? But you know what? It was in that position of weakness that we saw God's strength. We started praying about that. Lord, if, if she needs this medicine, you're going to have to provide it. You're going to have to make a way. Well, a few days after that, the pharmacist calls my mom. Mom, you remember this, don't we? Because she, after this phone call, she called me and said, I just got to tell you what God did. The pharmacist called my mom and said, Miss McCarson, I don't know, uh, uh, but I've got some incredible news for you that you need to hear. I've been on the phone with the people that supply your medication, and I think we've found a way to get you the medicine you need for next to nothing. And in that moment, listen to me, we may have been surrounded by a great enemy that we had no answer for, but God was surrounding my mama and my family and my church, and He gave us glimpses along the way saying, I know you're in the fire. I know you're in the mess. I know you don't have the answers, but I'm right there with you. I told you I'd never leave you or forsake you, and if you hang on, I'm going to show you my power and over and over again. And now today, my little mama can stand up and praise Jesus because He's a great physician who never leaves and never forsakes and He still makes house calls and He still answers prayer and He still meets you in your problem. I'm telling you, He's a faithful God and when you trust Him, you will be able to see the unseen. Lord, I don't, I don't see it right now. Help me open my eyes to see Your strength in my weakness. Your power in my vulnerability. Your presence in my problem. Your miracle working power in my circumstance. Now there's another really interesting thing that we need to touch on here. Another lesson. And that's this. Write it down. God has unseen angels protecting His people when they don't know it. Do you believe in angels? If you take the Word of God seriously, then you should. But friend, if we had a set of spiritual glasses that we could put on to see the unseen spiritual realm, I think we would be absolutely amazed at what goes around us. You see, the Bible teaches that, yes, there's a physical world of time and space and matter, and we're in it, but there's a spiritual dimension also about this world where angels and demons coexist beside you and me. Hebrews 13, 2, that's a good reminder. It says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Psalm 34, 7, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him, and He delivers them. Billy Graham wrote a great book about the study of angels. Listen to what he said. Very insightful thought. He said, Believer, look up, take courage. The angels are nearer than you think. Every true Christian should know that God's holy angels are watching. They mark your path. They superintend the events of your life and protect the interests of the Lord, always working to promote His plans and bring about His highest will for you. If you could only realize how close His ministering angels are, what calm assurance we could have in facing the cataclysms of life. 
He continued, he said, There are millions of angels at God's command to render service to the heirs of salvation. Indeed, he wrote, the hosts of heaven stand at attention as we must make our way from earth to glory. And Satan's BB guns are no match for God's heavenly artillery. I love collecting testimonies and stories, and I try and tell as many of them as I can in my messages. One of the greatest angel stories that I've ever heard comes from a lady who was a medical missionary in Nigeria. Her name is Janet Schneiderman. Here's what happened to this lady. She tells her testimony in a book. She lived in a remote area there in Nigeria. And one of the ministries that she had is she would go from the town where she was at and travel into some of the little villages and hamlets there and take her medicine with her and do the ministry out where they didn't have access to medical attention and medical help. And she said that a lot of these trips would take her out into the outskirts and that would involve camping out at night. So she'd just pitch a tent and, and camp out there in the jungle in the middle of the night and then wake up the next morning and make her way to the village where she was going. And she said one night as she was doing this, she came to the regular site where she was going to camp and she noticed that there were two men assaulting a, a, another young man. They were thieves. They were beating him up and they were taking his money. And she said that when they saw her approaching, they ran away. So she said, I gave medical attention to the young man, sent him on his way, and I set up my camp to spend the night there. She said, I woke up the next morning, not thinking anything, went on to the village, did my ministry, went back home. Well, a few weeks later, she was going back out to that same village. And as she passed through that village, she was stopped by a young man. And the young man came up to Miss Janet, and he said, you don't know me. He said, but I was one of those men who ran away a few weeks ago when you showed up and we were robbing that fella, I was one of those guys. And he said, I, I want you to know that we came back that night intending to kill you. We knew exactly where you were camped out. And we were coming back that night because we know that you had medicine and you had money and we were going to come in there and we were going to kill you and take the stuff that you had. But he said, we got there to rob you he said, before we could get to that, that camp, he said, we noticed that your whole tent was surrounded by soldiers. He said, in fact, we counted. There were 26 soldiers surrounding your tent. He said, it was the strangest thing we'd ever seen. Ma'am, can you explain this? And she, of course, said, well, I was traveling alone. Long story short, she ended up presenting the gospel to this young man, able to lead him to the Lord. That's not where the story ends. Months went by, she takes a break, she goes on furlough. She goes back to one of the home churches here in the United States that's supporting her through the mission work, through the giving. And she starts telling in her presentation the story about how God spared her life that night and how the soldiers were surrounding the tent. And a, a godly deacon, she said, stood up in the middle of the, of the story and said, Miss Snyderman, what day was that? And she said, well, I believe it was such and such a date. And he said, oh, I remember that day. He said, because I was overcome by the Spirit of the Lord that at that moment I needed to stop and pray for you. He said, in fact, I got on the phone and I started calling people at the church. I said, meet me down at the church. we got to go pray for Miss Janet. And she said, really? 
And the man turned around and he said, I want all of the men who prayed on that day to stand up. And he said, 26 men stood up in the congregation. You see, he, he had an unfailing advantage. And then he had an unseen ally. And by the way, you have these two. And then number three, I want you to see as we close today, an unorthodox action. An unorthodox action. So we've seen the Word of God and the presence of God. And now you're going to see the mercy of God. And this is one of those passages where you read it and you get so caught up in the angels, you don't read to the rest of the story and see how Elisha actually got victory over the Syrians. But notice how the theme of spiritual sight and blindness comes into play. The servant was blind. He said, God opened his eyes so he can see. Now watch what happens verse 18. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike these people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance to the prayer of Elisha. Now this is interesting. Note this because the whole story is going to turn around right here because of this incredible miracle about who has true vision. Things aren't always what they appear to be in life, are they? The world says seeing is believing, but the Bible and biblical faith reverses that order and says, no, 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 believing is seeing. I love what the early church father Augustine said. He said, the test of faith is to believe what you do not see and the reward of faith is to see what you have believed. Now notice how the tables are about to get turned through this use of spiritual sight. Verse 19. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way and this is not the city, but follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. And as soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And so the Lord opened their eyes and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. And as soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? Hold on right there. Elisha's servant goes from fear to confidence when his eyes are open and he sees that God is in the presence of that problem. The Syrian army now goes from confidence to fear as they are blinded, led into the city of Samaria, and then given back their sight only now to recover that they're the ones surrounded. The advantage that the enemy thought would give them the upper hand has been taken by God, turned around, and now he's going to use that for his purpose. You see, the Syrians thought, oh, the solution to our problem is to capture the man of God. Instead, God flipped the script on them. And they found that the greatest blessing was in them being captured by the man of God. Because notice what happens, verse 22, they are expecting judgment, they're expecting death, they're expecting the sword. Shall I strike him down? And then notice, Verse 22, you shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those who you have taken captive with your sword and your bow? Get bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. Praise God. 
When Elisha gives the enemy back their vision, he says to the king of Israel, hey, there's no honor in killing a prisoner of war. Open up the royal kitchen. Set the table. Get out the bread. Let's feed these guys and throw them a feast. Don't show them judgment. Show them some mercy. Show them some love. And what a drastic reversal. The Syrians think that they're going in to the camp of the man of God expecting judgment and wrath and the sword. And what do they find out when they get there? It's a place of mercy and grace. Where you heard that before, friend? How about the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? We come to the cross and we expect judgment. God doesn't love me. I'm a sinner. God, what could you do with somebody like me? And God says, oh, but you don't know about my love for you. I died for you. I bled for you. I rose for you. And you're not going to be given wrath and judgment and death. Instead, I've got a table of mercy and grace that I want to give to you. Friend, that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just like Elisha, the Lord Jesus there on the cross he could have called down angels to come down and smite the people that were killing them but you know what he said instead father forgive them for they know not what they do instead of getting judgment there was mercy the bible says in romans 5 10 that when we were enemies when we were enemies hello we were reconciled to god by the death of his son even more so being reconciled and saved by the life of Jesus Christ. We deserve death. We deserve judgment. But instead of getting what we deserve, God gives us what we can earn and what we don't deserve by His mercy and grace. He says, don't, don't fight with me. I don't want to fight with you. I want you to feast with me. Come in and sup and eat with me and I'll show you what I'm all about. I think about the old hymn, Justice Called and Mercy Answered. Once I was lost down deep in sin, but Christ came and took me in. My soul was on destruction's road, but Christ came and took my load because justice called and mercy answered. Jesus heard my feeble plea. Yes, I'll be there 10,000 years and it will be because of love for justice called and mercy answered. Don't you think that was eye-opening to this enemy army? They saw something that day. Hey, the God of Israel isn't my enemy. He's my friend. They saw that blessing came not from conquering, but from being conquered by love. They saw that God's rules of engagement are not like man's ways. God doesn't return evil for evil. He defeats evil through good. And what the Syrians saw that day was so profound. Look at what verse 23 says. So he prepared for them a great feast, and when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them on their way, and they went to their master, and the Syrians did not come again on raids to the land of Israel. There's something strange about that man of God, something that we can't get our minds around, that prophet Elisha. And friend, I'm telling you, that's what the gospel does. <laughs> you hear it once and you say, I don't know about that gospel. I don't know about Jesus. I certainly don't know about that preacher. But there's something about it that I can't get my mind around. That he wouldn't judge me, but he would give me mercy and he would give me grace. You see, here's, listen. Sinners need to know that God loves them. 
Sinners don't need to be beaten over the head with condemnation. Sinners need to know that God is full of mercy and He's full of grace. And He says, if you'll stop fighting with me and come in, I'll set the table for you. You don't have to fight against me. You can feast with me. That's the God that we serve. Why fight against Him when you could feast with Him, friend? And if you don't know this Savior, hey, He's setting the table for you today to come. Oh, and drink deeply from the well of grace. To take part from the bread of life and find out, hey, what did it take me so long to make this decision? Taste and see that the Lord is good. So here's the lesson. God's way of winning is by turning adversaries into allies through the preaching of the gospel. That's the way God wins. And that's our role to play too. We're to take the gospel to a world that is at enmity with God. And we're to declare the mercy of God through the cross. See, the Lord doesn't want to punish people. He wants to offer them peace. And He wants to say, i got a place at the table for you too. So come and eat. Here's the good news. If you're going to live that kind of life, it takes faith, doesn't it? And here's the good news. You've got somebody better than angels. You've got the Holy Spirit and you've got the Son. Remember Corey Tin Boom? There she was, standing in that line, about to go in Ravensbrook camp, holding on to the Word of God. She said, as I stood in a long line of women waiting for inspection, she said, Lord, send your angels to surround me. Hide me behind your angels. The guards must not see me with your word. She said, as I passed through the guards without being touched, everyone in line was searched from the front to the sides and the back. In front of me, she said, a woman with a wool vest was searched. My sister Betsy, she said, just behind me, she was searched from head to toe. She said, but they let me pass. And then she wrote this in her journal. She said, it was almost as if the guards didn't see me at all. Lord, she said, if you can answer a prayer like that, I know you can get me through to the other side.